actually it was a surprise for me that day I I went to work after two hours they let us know that we have to close the the restaurant and go to human resource to receive a letter of uh, laid off. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And that was Roy James talking about his last shift on March 19th at a restaurant inside Miami International Airport, where he's tended bar for the past 10 years after coming to the US from Cuba 15 years ago. More than 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits in the past two months. Now, if you're having trouble thinking about that very big number, try this. It's the equivalent of wiping out all of the jobs created in the US economy since 1999. That's more than 20 years of job gains gone in a matter of weeks. As we record this, we're waiting for the official US jobs report for April, but we already know it's going to show a record-breaking fall in employment. And we also know that the parts of the workforce that had only recently benefited from that long, slow recovery after the last recession are the parts that are now being hit first. Our US economy reporter, Katia Dimitrieva, has been one of several Bloomberg reporters who've been trying to put a face and a voice on some of those numbers. I'll talk to her in a minute. And I'm also going to be hearing from our Eurozone economist, Maeva Cousin, about the contrasting situation in Europe. Unemployment there hasn't risen as fast as in the US, but as many as 40 million workers are now having their wages indirectly paid by the state. First, though, let's hear a bit more from Roy James about what's happened to him since he lost his job. He was talking to Bloomberg reporter Jeff Green. trying to apply online. Uh, the system was uh, impossible. I was already out for a lot of weeks. And I didn't receive nothing yet, not even information. Right now, I'm already okay My to pay my rent. I get a deal for the first month. But for the second month, I didn't get a deal. I have to pay all my rent. My rent yesterday, but by the time everything going to go back to normal, we uh, we have to pay everything but the, but the same time. And we, if we not receive the help that we're supposed to receive from the government, from where are going to get the money to pay all those dues? But the people need that help, and there are a lot of people. No, we're not talking about a couple hundreds, we're talking about millions. So that was Roy James in Florida. Well, Katia Dimitrieva has been part of the same project. She's a US economy reporter and she's with me now. Katia, give me some of the background, the story you were trying to tell by talking to the seven people featured in this article. Because I know you were, in a way, you're trying to draw a contrast between what they're experiencing now and what these groups were enjoying in the labour market the conditions that they were seeing even as recently as just a few months ago. Yeah, that was one of the things we wanted to explore uh, is what the labor market looks like right now and what it feels like for people on the ground. The first entry point into this was just putting a face behind the data. And, and the second part is really just finding out what is happening on the ground. One thing that we were really curious about is what happens when people are looking for a job right now when they're 
when they're hunting, because a few months ago, they would have been welcomed uh, with open arms by employers. Employers were desperate for workers. They were willing to pay higher wages. They were willing to offer benefits, everything from childcare to maybe a bit more um, uh, loose kind of hours if you want to stagger your hours. Uh, for example, they were offering uh, healthcare benefits at a higher rate. And that's completely changed. And it happened very, very quickly. We've had a long jobs recovery since the global financial crisis. Some of these more marginalised members of the labour market, uh, minorities, women, had really only just been benefiting from that recovery the last few years. Are we seeing those groups being hit first by this crisis, the kind of first in, first out dynamic? The March data does show a tick up in the unemployment rate for African-Americans, for Hispanics, for women, but it also shows a tick up in the unemployment just more broadly. What we do know from the data is that they are more likely to be let go first. Um, They're in industries that happen to be a bit more precarious, and so they're more likely to be let go. And also, they're in industries that were most affected first. So retail stores, restaurants. So this is um, people over the age of 55. Uh, there was this sort of uh, rise in the participation rate in the labor market amongst that amongst that group. And um, of course, we know across the country, restaurants uh, just shuttered in, in droves. And the same with retail stores. We had a bunch of closures. These are also minimum wage jobs. And a large uh, portion of those uh, folks were let go as well. Yes, it's interesting. Not only the, the, I was listening to some of these interviews, and they do all seem to have been surprised by losing their jobs. They had somehow thought that it was going to be temporary, or that their employers would try and hold keep them on. Um, and you also had spoken, you and your colleagues, to quite a lot of young people. And we know historically that young people can have the most lasting effects from a recession if they lose their first job or are unable to get on the jobs ladder at all after leaving high school or college because of a recession. You might think, well, that's just a few months delay, but actually the numbers suggest people can have a permanent hit to their income from missing out in that first step uh, in their career. And I think, uh, Katia, you and your your colleagues um, interviewed a few people like that, including a woman in Ohio, Dani Ortiz, who Viviana Hurtado, your colleague, met. Do you, how much do you know about her? What's, what's her story? Yeah, uh, Dani is a 25-year-old in Cleveland, and she was furloughed from her part-time job as a teaching assistant at a Montessori school. And it kind of shows this chain reaction that happens because when she lost her job, she basically lost her main source of income and how she was paying for her school. And she was supposed to complete her associate's degree this summer, and that would have let her do uh, Montessori uh, teacher training and then also transfer to a BA. So the knock-on effect of that job loss means that she cannot complete her associate's degree. She can't move on to uh, do this really crucial teacher training and essentially, she has delayed the start of her career. So here's Danny Ortiz now. But it was just so out of nowhere. So it just happened so sudden. 
you know, you didn't have time to prepare. It was like, okay, here's your last check and you won't get four more for the rest of the year. And at least for me, I am okay money-wise, but that's not going to last forever. It's going to last me at least two more months, maybe. This summer, I was supposed to take the uh, Montessori training and so that I could have my own classroom in two years. But, you know, that all changed. Um, So just like, just like career wise, like I've had to reconsider things, not just schooling, but like the training that I wanted to do this year. To me, it sounded a lot like what happened to um, millennials when they graduated into the recession in 2008, 2009, as far as 2010. And they were faced with a few jobs and the jobs that they were able to get the power was really with the employer. They could uh, they could pay them what they wanted, um, often not not the best benefits. So basically, the polar opposite of of what we were seeing up until a couple months ago. Um, the point you made actually about uh, the surprise that these folks had when they lost their jobs, I think it's really important because the economic expansion completely changed the dynamic of the workforce. Uh, you went from something that Danny Ortiz is probably going to face now graduating into a market that maybe doesn't want her. Um, And instead, they were going into a market where people were desperate for workers, uh, all kinds of workers, people without a college degree, people who had some college, um, people who didn't even want to go to college, um, African-Americans who, like I mentioned, their unemployment rate went down, jobs were offered to them. So it's worth emphasizing how surprising it was because employers were really bending over backwards up until a few months ago to keep people on hand. Katia, finally, uh, was anything surprising to you in the reporting that you did in the last week or recently? Uh, You know, what's the main takeaway been for you? I think one of the more interesting parts in the reporting and in speaking with some of these people that are in this story is just how finding out just how precarious the labor market was for them even before the coronavirus. You know, I think I think we often talk about the coronavirus as this black swan event that caused a lot of these issues. But the reality is that as as good as the gains were beforehand, you know, wages did rise and people were able to find jobs easier. But a lot of the protections weren't in place either. And uh, the wages often didn't compensate people for the kind of for the kind of work they were doing. So if anything, I think that's the question going forward is after all of this is over, uh, when the economy, quote unquote, reopens and people start going back to work, what will the labor force look like? Basically, Um, maybe people will get that kind of stability where they can't just be let go at a moment's notice and lose their health care and benefits. uh, Or will it be eroded further? Uh, which is what we saw in the 2008 financial crisis. So I think that's a big question going forward. And it's definitely one that we're going to be talking about a lot and you hear asked across the world now, not just in the US. Katia Dimitrieva, thank you very much. Thanks so much. So the International Labour Organization estimated this week that working hours worldwide would be at least 10% lower this quarter than before the pandemic started, which is the equivalent of 305 million full-time jobs. 
Now, countries probably don't have a choice about whether to have that kind of decline in employment in their countries if they want to contain the virus. But the decisions that governments take can affect whether people at the sharp end of that decline can formally stay in their jobs during this time, earning wages rather than joining the ranks of the unemployed. In the US, as we've heard, unemployment has already soared, and that could yet happen across Europe. But we've also seen governments step in to cover wages directly to the point where now a mind-boggling number of people are getting their wages indirectly paid by the state. Our Eurozone economist, Meva Cousin, who's been on the programme before, has been looking at the numbers. Meva, good to have you back. How many people across the Eurozone are currently being paid by the state, by your calculation? So looking just at the four biggest countries, so France, Germany, Italy and Spain, it's about 30 million people who have filed for those uh, short-term unemployment schemes, those, those partial unemployment schemes, where they are still employed by a company, but there's no activity and their wages are paid by the state. And what has that meant? I mean, you look at what the equivalent might have been in terms of the unemployment rate if you hadn't seen governments introduce those wage support schemes quite early on at the same time as lockdowns began? So at the moment, there are about 10 million unemployed across those euro area economies as big four. Uh, if you had 30 million people who are now short term in those short term unemployment schemes, that would be, mean 40 million unemployed. It would multiply the, the unemployment rate by, uh, by about, by about four. So to about 30%. If you add on top of that, the, the other workers that can't go into the unemployment, uh, the short-term unemployment, you could easily reach 40% unemployment rate at the, at the uh, peak of the, of the lockdown. So around now, start of May is probably the peak. 40% from 8% uh, in February. We're recording this before we've got the April employment numbers for the US, but we, most forecasters are expecting... Um, well over 20 million decline in employment and potentially uh, an unemployment rate in the US heading to 20% over the next few weeks if it's not there already. So uh, what you're saying is it could be it could have been maybe even double that in Europe if you'd not had this support programs in place but now it's going to be maybe in the region of 12 to 14% depending on depending on what happens. Yeah, that's about where I see it. That's, that's a sort of range. At the moment, it's difficult to know how much, in fact. So if you look at the March, uh, unemployment rate in the euro area, it has, uh, increased only marginally. And the main reason from 7.3% for the euro area as well to 7.4%, I think. And the main reason is that, um, to be registered as unemployed, according to the ILO definition, you have to be, uh, not working. You have to be actively looking for a job and you have to be available to start a job. And because people are in lockdowns, they are not necessarily available uh, to start a job because they can't move. So the um, headline unemployment rate won't tell you the, uh, the full extent of the impact. But when you look at claimant numbers, so people who have failed to get the unemployment benefits, then you can see some increase. In Spain, for instance, it has risen to um, more or less where it was uh, at the end of 2016, so quite a lot. In France, it has increased as well, but still it hasn't increased as much 
as you could have expected. And you can see as well in the administrative data, in Spain, for instance, about um, 900,000 people have lost their jobs due to the pandemic, so between mid-March and the end of April. Um, most of them, almost 800,000, are temporary workers uh, and very few permanent workers. And in contrast, you have had an increase in the short-term unemployed, so these uh, furloughed worker schemes, of about 3 million in Spain. So you can see that there is still an impact on the labor market. It's not necessarily something you can see very well in the data yet because of these problems of collecting the statistics during the lockdowns. Um, but the impact is a lot smaller than it would have been without the furloughed worker schemes. And we've seen that also in the US. We see it everywhere, actually, this gap between the number of people losing their jobs and the number of people who you see joining unemployment roles for exactly that reason. I think it's about 40 or 50% of people losing their jobs in the US are not necessarily um, joining the formerly unemployed. People outside the U Europe might say, well, this isn't so different. You know, we think of Europe as being a place of big government and they already have lots of people working in the public sector. Um, maybe this isn't such a psychological shift for European governments. But, I mean, what do you think is the implications of the government having intervened this heavily in the labour market? I mean, is it going to be hard to unwind and is it going to be impossibly expensive, even for these uh, notoriously big spending European governments? So I don't think it's going to be hard to unwind. When activity returns, those workers will go back to work. And in a way, it's actually a lot, should be easier to unwind than normal unemployment, than people moving onto the unemployment benefits and then they have to find a new job. Those workers, they still have a job. They are still linked to a company. It's just that there's no activity for this company at the moment. So I think it should be relatively straightforward for um, those workers to go back to their normal activity and go back to their employer's payroll rather than being paid by the state. So I'm not too worried um, about the difficulty in unwinding, but it is clear that the programs have been generally made more generous, more easy to access, and most most governments initially had said it would be for March and April, but now they have to increase and they have started increasing um, or extending to May as well, of course, because the lockdowns are still in place and they are only going to be gradually um, removed. So it's going to cost more, but it will come to an end. When activity resumes and returns, they, they will go back to work. But is it, is it worth the money, do you think? You make the good point that it's the European Commission has helped to... to provide a backup uh, so that countries which perhaps didn't feel they had the fiscal capacity, the budget to do this, could could do it. As far as you're concerned, is this are these tens of billions uh, money well spent? In many countries, it's not much more expensive than people claiming unemployment benefits. In Spain, for instance, it is exactly the same money that people will receive as unemployment benefits. So if those workers would have been fired and moved to the to the claimant count, then, you know, it's it's the same amount. And at least they are keeping a direct link to the labor market and you're not destroying. It's quite a, you know, it's an investment. It's 
it's a productive capacity that's matching between workers and firms. And when you lose them, you have to spend more effort, more time finding the right people and training them. So I think it's money well spent, definitely. Meva Cousin, thank you very much. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you. So thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more about the way COVID-19 is turning the world economy upside down. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Roy James, Danny Ortiz, Jeff Green, Viviana Hurtado, Katia Dimitrieva and Maeva Cousin. Scott Landman is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.